This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Praise the Lord. Let me quickly mention the three books that we have on the product table. Well done. Everyone wants Jesus to say to them, well done. Uh, It's not something that he owes you. Just because you show up at church or some special event, it meant that you did something. You did it well. You did it excellently. You did it passionately. You did it faithfully. And you did it with a servant heart. Uh, In the last days, God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. But it says specifically upon His servants, both men and women, He will pour out His Spirit. Servant-hearted people are the carriers of the glory of God because the others are into themselves. Servants live for someone else, in this case, for Him. The word servant comes from the Greek word doulos, which means one who serves another even to the disregard of his own needs or interests. Everyone has need, everyone has interests, but a servant-hearted people will serve a generation and will serve the living God. And uh, that's a good book. This one, Bold, will stir you. Uh, The Bible says, The wicked flee where no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Uh, Based on that scripture, I used to jog, but I stopped jogging because um, the wicked flee where no one pursues. All joggers are fleeing from something. They just don't know what. So, um, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Um, What an incredible thought. My name actually means lion. (laughs) So boldness comes to me very easily. But even if you're not naturally bold, you can be supernaturally bold. There is a supernatural impartation of authority, boldness. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Ask God for supernatural boldness, supernatural courage, because it's going to take that to win this generation. I was just watching these young men worshiping up front here, and uh, if, if I were the pastor of this church the first thing I would do is take these six or seven young men and I'd begin to invest into their lives. Now, I wouldn't make it easy for them. I'd make them show up at odd times like four o'clock in the morning. But I would would invest into them and because I just saw world changes here, worshiping God. Hallelujah. World changes. And what I loved about them, now they're disappointed me, they're sitting on the back row. Back row, backsliders row. You've got to move forward, dudes. You've got to move forward. Um, but you've got to be bold to preach the gospel in the face of hostility. You've got to be bold when society persecutes you and rejects you. Not arrogant, but bold. We don't want to be arrogant. We've got to walk with humility and sensitivity. We'll not win them by winning an argument. We'll win them by addressing their heart and operating in sensitivity to the Spirit of God. I've never worked a miracle that has not required me to put myself out there at a place of risk. To cast out demons takes boldness. To lay hands on the sick takes boldness. To prophesy takes boldness. To preach the gospel 
takes boldness. To worship unashamedly takes boldness. I love the young man David that took on the giant. He certainly operated in a realm of boldness. He wasn't intimidated by the size of the, of the enemy because he was bold in our God. And he took him on. And in fact, I, I truly believe that David didn't just take on Goliath, but he took on the whole army. He didn't just go for the giant. As far as he was concerned, I'm going to take you out, and then I'm going to take the whole army out, single-handedly. Some people would say that's arrogant. I would say that's bold. It's going to take a bold generation to win this world. Yeah, come all our fiery young preachers. That's what elders do. They go and grab them and say, get yourself in the front row. The preacher said, move. <laughs> this one, capture, capture the heart of God for the nations. We have to be mission-minded people. Even if you never go to Barbados, and you should, the beaches are unbelievably beautiful, but we never go on foreign missions for the beach. In fact, the, I was there in peak hurricane season, and the day I left, the hurricane was meant to hit. I delayed it one day, and then as I flew off, I said, God, would you please let it dissipate? And it did. Thank God. Uh, it worked once. <laughs> I like to move weather around, especially a hurricane bearing down on me, canceling my flight, because I only had one day at home. I didn't have the luxury of missing that flight. So, um, but it's a beautiful island and beautiful people, but it's, uh, uh, it's very religious. There's churches everywhere, but there's no signs, wonders, and miracles. There's no uh, people pressing into God. And I want to take some young people and some young, not, not so young, to do a job there and to reach the lost and then have a big healing crusade and just believe God for signs, wonders, and miracles. Capture will stir your heart for the nations. Um, I want to continue in the subject of I seek, not my own. By the way, these books are $12, and at the end of the service, if you would want to get one, get it, because we're going to pack it up and ship it out tomorrow, so it'll be your last opportunity. And is Barbara here? Was she? Uh, I need to get one book. Don't let me forget. I need to take one book home um, so that I can study it. I need to preach it again. <laughs> I've been dealing with, as Pastor Rob said, the subject of I seek. And I do trust that our hearts have been stirred. I was in a church, and I said to them, would you seek God just for one month? Take the time that you would normally watch television, and just lay that down for one month. And if you watch for an hour, take an hour and use that hour to seek God. If you watch TV for four hours, I know that's going to stretch someone. But if you would take four hours a day and seek God, and then give one month, of seeking God in the time that you would just watch television. Now, I'm not against television. I'm just against television. <laughs> when it so dominates your mind that all you hear is what the world has got to say and you don't hear what God's got to say. You understand? I'm not against. I'm, we're not controlling and manipulating and wanting people to, to have to give up 
sport, recreation, hobbies, or interests. However, if that thing so dominates you, it's an idol. That thing can control your family, your mind. I said to this church, would you please take one month, and in the time that you typically would watch TV, you know your daily habits, your routines. Set that time to seek God in the Word and in prayer. And then tell me after one month how your spirit has developed. I'm telling you, I was overwhelmed that people... People actually thought they were born again again. They had recognized how distant they had become to God and how close they became in that month as they sought His face and received His touch. People who hadn't heard the voice of God before began to hear the voice of God. Doors began to open. Lives were ignited in passion just from drawing aside from the affairs of everyday living that were distractions, and they sought God, and they watched the change take place in their lives, in their attitudes, in their homes, in their business, and in their spirituality. I wondered if we would just take just one hour a day just to seek God for the next month, and then get my email from Pastor Rob, and uh, shoot me an email. Don't message me because I don't read Facebook Messenger, but email me. I will reply to it. I want to hear what God has done for your life. I want to hear how you've been expanded and touched by God. Would you do that Leon challenge just for one month, one hour a day to seek God in His Word and in prayer. Just separate yourself from TV or something like Facebook. That it, how many of you go on Facebook or social media? Just separate yourself for one month and the time that you would spend in that interest and seek God and let's watch what He will do for your life. I'm telling you, you will grow. Have you, have you ever read the story of Jack and the Beanstalk? You will start to see overnight growth take place in your faith, in your vision, in your capacity for God. You will, instead of being dominated by your circumstances, you will start to dominate your circumstances. You will step into an authority and anointing that you didn't think was possible as you begin to access the glory of God. How many of you are interested in that Leon Challenge? How many of you think you could do it? I, I truly believe you are going to write to me and you're going to say, Leon, I'm spirit-filled. Leon, I'm born again, again, again. Leon, I have heard the voice of God. Leon, I have reached souls this year, this month. I've seen my family turn around. I believe it's possible. Now, tonight I want to change. You remember on Sunday morning, I seek Him in the sanctuary Sunday night I spoke about how I sought God for salvation and then how I sought God for increased maturity, development, growth. We seek God for open doors. We seek God for mountains to move. We seek God for change and breakthroughs in our life. We seek God because we want to be spirit-filled. You understand there are many reasons why we seek God. And uh, the only limits that exist in your pursuit for God is the boundaries of your lack of faith and your small-mindedness. There is no limitation to your approach to God. 
There is nothing that He cannot do for you and through you if you are earnest in your pursuit for Him. How many of you want to begin to seek God like never before and just start to draw closer to get to that place where like you dwell in the secret place of the Most High? Enoch walked with God. He was a seeker after God, and then he was not. He just walked into the glory of God. As he sought God, he discovered the reality of God's presence. Eventually, as you study Enoch's life, he would go f- further and further and longer and longer away from the people as he drew closer to God. You'll find as you begin to seek God that things that you thought were important are going to become totally unimportant. And the things that were unimportant are going to start to become important. And then when you seek God, you'll be like Ezekiel. You will see things that the rest of society doesn't see. You'll hear things that they don't hear, and you will do things. You'll begin to prophesy into this nation the Word of God, and as you speak the Word of God, the Spirit of God is going to begin to move and bring a great change into this community, into this church, into this nation. How many of you are ready for some powerful change in your life? I love Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that mean, while he may be found? I thought he can be found anytime, anywhere, because today is the day of salvation. Now faith is, so we understand that God is and God is accessible. There are certain times when God makes himself more available to you than other times. We have to learn how to discern the kairos moments in God as He starts to manifest to us. Remember last night I, I quoted to you from the, the Psalm 27 when the Lord said, Seek my face. And the psalmist's response was, My heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. There are times when God sends us an invitation. I think This weekend and today is an opportunity and an invitation from God to this church. And God is saying, seek my face. And as you seek my face, I am drawing near to you. And as you draw near to me, you will start to discover realms in the Spirit and things that you've longed to do and see will begin to manifest in your life. There was an invitation Seek my face. Yeah, Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. There are times when God sends out an appeal. When the Spirit begins to woo you, draw you, you're not meant to back away. That's when you're meant to separate yourself and begin to press into the glory of God. I'm fully persuaded that many Christians are so entangled in the affairs of everyday living that if they heard the audible voice of God, they would still be engaged in earthly and the temporal things, and they would just separate themselves from the voice of God. They would be like Jonah going in the wrong direction rather than in the the direction of their purpose. God's calling His people everywhere to go deeper in the Spirit. God's calling His people, the church, to mount up on wings like eagles and soar into realms that we've dreamt about. 
This generation needs a powerful move of God for a powerful move of God to take place. There's got to be a people prepared, ready, waiting, stirred, full of faith, full of passion, full of fire. First Chronicles 22:19. He says, "Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God." That's a decision. It's a conscious decision. God's not going to force you. He's going to appeal to you. And when you hear his voice and he is near to you, that's when you have to set your mind. Set your mind. The same principle appears in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you are born again, and you've entered into this life in the Spirit, seek the things that are above. That's a conscious decision. God gives you invitation. Seek the things that are above. Seek my face. Then you have to say, your face, Lord, will I seek. You have to begin to press through the issues, the barriers, the, the obstacles and the blockages. And you have to start to take your thoughts captive, your time captive, your interests captive, and reprioritize your life into the appeal of heaven. Set your mind and heart, that is to fix your attention upon the Lord, to seek Him, to set your mind, not to allow yourself to be distracted. And then the classic Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't put the things that you need to eat, wear, and accomplish where you stay, what you drive is your highest priority. Seek first the kingdom. Then the stuff that you need for everyday living will locate you. People have got their priorities wrong. You say, yeah, but I've got to get up and go to work. You think because I'm a preacher, I don't have needs, interests, appeals from everywhere. But I have to seek first as my highest priority, the presence of God, the rule of God, the kingdom of God, and His righteousness. In other words, I've got to seek Him as the Lord, as the King, as the ruler, and then I've got to do what is right, what He is telling me to do. And then as I do what is right with Him as my highest priority, bam, everything I need will locate me. I don't have to go after it. I say that as an introduction, and now I want to get to the crunch of tonight's message. I remember saying on Sunday morning, this is one of the most important messages that I could ever preach, seeking Him in the sanctuary, because we need a cultural shift in the church from a Western worldview to a kingdom worldview. We need a revelation of church. What gets us born again is a revelation of Christ, but we now need not only a revelation of Christ, but a revelation of the church. We need to get the biblical worldview of church because we have developed a religious worldview. When Jesus came to the earth and He began His ministry, what He did is He began His ministry by teaching His disciples the Beatitudes. What were the Beatitudes? He was teaching them the attitudes and the priorities of heaven because they had been so indoctrinated in the religion and their Judaic roots that they had actually drifted away from the kingdom attitudes. They had become harsh, critical, unteachable, and he wanted to have a shift 
in their attitudes. If we ever needed a shift in the church, it is today. If you look at the primitive church, the early church, this infant church, that was not where we are meant to end. That is where we are meant to start. And I'm saying, how the mighty have fallen, if that was the birth, the early, the primitive, the infant church, the last day's church must be magnificent, glorious, and powerful, strong, and world-changing. And instead, the world is changing us. How many of you have felt the world's impact in the church rather than us impacting the world? We need to regain what we have lost And then we need to press and take what we've never had. For that to take place, we need a holy encounter with a holy God, where He infuses us with His love, passion, compassion, and power, and word, and light, so that we can carry something to the world. That like Peter and John, we'll be able to say, that which I have, I give unto you. That we have laid a hold of what Christ has laid hold of for us, and that we've got something to give this generation. Instead of just words, that we've got some power that we can give and release to this generation. And I'm not preaching about preachers and apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. I'm talking about the everyday Christian You are a carrier of God's light, of God's word, of God's power, of God's love to this generation. You are not just a mere citizen of earth. You are a citizen of the kingdom. Glad that excited you so much. I think tonight's message is one of the most important that I can share in 45 years of ministry. We need a radical shift in the church. And I want to share on... uh, the subject of I seek, and I've entitled it, I seek not my own. I seek Him, I seek Him in the sanctuary, and I seek not my own. Tonight is, I seek not my own. Now remember, we're talking about a cultural shift from not just being a part of a Western worldview, modern church, but we have to get to a Christ-centered biblical view of church of our relationship, and of our operations on earth, because we are firstly citizens of heaven. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're not conformed to this world. We are His royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peculiar doesn't mean we weird. It means that we, God has the transaction, the covenant agreement that possesses the land of our lives. We belong to Him. We are not our own. We belong to Him. My life is not my own. To Him I belong. I give myself, I give myself away to Him. Selflessness runs counter to the way we've been raised. And that's the problem is it's easy to be selfish but it's very difficult to be selfless. And yet, it is mandatory for every disciple to deny himself, take up the cross, and follow him. There was no other way of entrance into discipleship or 
the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So when we say we're a Christian, it is the same thing as saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus. We don't like the word disciple anymore because it has connotations of some failed system in the uh, early 70s. But I want you to know that the Great Commission was not a good suggestion. It was a Great Commission, and it said, make disciples. He said, make disciples. We don't make even good members, let alone disciples. If we raised up disciples, we would one our generation. But what we do is we raise up a people who attend church. There's a big difference between church attendance and being a disciple of Jesus. And those that became disciples of Jesus, he said, if any man, let me give you Leon's expanded translation of if any man, everyone that wants to come after me, must what? Deny himself. That's the problem, is selfish people do not want to deny themselves. They see themselves as the center of their universe. To be born again means to abdicate the throne of your will, to make Jesus the Lord, to make Jesus the king of the kingdom, to place him in the highest place, not the lowest, the least, the leftovers, the dregs. That's again part of the problem of this modern Western world is that we have been so raised that Jesus gets the leftovers. When I was a kid, every now and again my parents would take me to a steakhouse. The steak would always be bigger than what I could finish. And then we'd ask the waiter for a doggy bag. In those days, they used to have an image of a dog or a bone on the bag, and it would be with the mind that it would be for the doggy, except I would go, woof, woof, woof. I'd eat it later on back home. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And that's what Christians do. They eat the best, and then they give God the doggy bag, the leftovers, the scraps, the dregs of their life. But when He is Lord... When he is our first and highest pursuit, he doesn't get the dregs, the leftovers. He gets the best. He gets the first fruits. He doesn't get the leftovers of our life, the leftovers of our time, the leftovers of our energy, the leftovers of our finance. He gets the best, the top, the first fruits, the firstborn, the best. It's difficult to be selfless. It's easy to be selfish. Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. Let me say it again. It is no longer I who lives. Selfishness is I. The I no longer lives. That's the problem. We have too many little eyes and not the great I am. The way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water. He is not getting his rightful place. He is the great I am. We are the little I. The little I has to bow to the great I am 
Who shall I say has sent me? I am. The I am is the one who is meant to rule. But what's happened is it's no longer I who lives is a verse that we quote, but it's not a verse that we live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love gives. Selflessness gives. Lays down just like Pastor Rob in the introduction was saying, selfishness, you present yourself to God. He laid down his life. Heaven gave the best for us. Now as the new creation species, as those who are in Christ, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I no longer live according to the flesh, but I live according to the Spirit laying down my life for something bigger and better than myself. Love gives the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. Love gives. Selflessness is found in love. And then giving becomes the extension of that love, the demonstration of that love. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 and 5. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. I seek not my own. The love life Loving God, loving one another, makes the little I bow before the great I am, and He becomes the supreme authority and our highest priority, and therefore giving is living, <laughs> laying down our lives for something bigger than ourselves becomes easy because love is our motivation. I don't believe it is possible to live selflessly without a constant abiding in Him, a recognition of who we are in Christ, what we are in Christ, what we are called to do in Christ. We have to set our affections on the things above. We have to set our mind on the things above. We have to set our, our attention and our affection upon Him who gave Himself for us because He loved us. And now our response is, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I want to read to you Philippians chapter 2. In verses 19 to 22, and I want to get you in the context of, of this epistle. Philippians is a thank you letter that Paul writes to the church, the only church that financially supported him. And yet embedded in this letter, this thank you letter, is some very important words. Bear in mind that all Scripture is given by God. So this was written not only for the Philippians, 
but has now been written for every subsequent believer that would read the Word of God. Do you understand? So it was written as doctrine for them, as a message for them, but it is also now a message for us. So even though uh, you will find in here names of disciples or followers or a name, but in reality, it's not just speaking about that generation, it's speaking about this generation today. Just like we would take John 3.16, for God so loved Leon. We have to embed our name in the Scripture that this is something God has written for them, but He has now written for me. That's how I read the Word. What about you? I don't just read it about for them as a historic account, but I read it in the Spirit for now. What is God saying to me? How does this affect my priorities, my life, my calling, my ministry? You understand? So I'm reading this Scripture as a thank you letter to the Philippians, but I'm bringing it into context. How does it affect me? He says, yeah, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Leaders want to know the state of the church. Any leader that's not concerned about the state of the church is not a true spiritual leader. When the church is indifferent, it's an irritation to us. When the church is carnal, it's an irritation to us. Because it's not where we want you to be. When we say where we don't want you to be, we are speaking on behalf of God as an oracle to you from God. And so we are always concerned about the health and the state of the church. And Paul was concerned about the state of the church, even though they were givers and they were engaged and they were involved. He wanted to know that they were healthy, that they were growing, that they were spiritually minded, that they were on fire. That should be every preacher's desire and dream to know that the church is flourishing and doing well. And yeah, he embeds in the midst of this these critical words, and yet is an indictment at the same time. He says, Paul writes, for I have no one like-minded. Do you know what the Greek for no one means? No one. For I have no one like-minded. Like-minded to what? To me, who really cares for you, Paul is saying, I have no one that's like me who really cares about your state, your health, your spirituality, who will sincerely care for your state. Here it is. For all. I wish that wasn't there. I wish he would have written for some, for a few. But I have to read it the way it is written, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. That's a heavy indictment. I pray that our generation will not have all, that we will get to a place where some, a few, and even when there is a few, I will be dissatisfied. I'm after 100% of the world saved, 100% of the world 
born again, filled with the Spirit, living for God, then I can go to be with Him. While there is one lost, while there is one immature, while there, was, while there is one in selfishness, I've got a job. I've got more job security than anyone in this world. Because there's a lot of unsaved people, there's a lot of carnal people, there's a lot of untrained people. I have got job security. Because, you know, the other day I was in a church and the pastor was telling me, and it was a good report. He was saying, you know, the people in my church are all givers. I would say about 85% of my church is giving. And he smiled and he thought I was going to compliment him and say, well done. I said, wow, brother, you've still got a lot of work to do. You've got another 15% to teach and train, to be committed and invested in the, in the, the, the church. You've still got some work to do. <laughs> and that's what Paul was saying here. For all seek their own. They're about themselves. I wonder if we had to be brutally honest with the modern-day church how few are really after the things of God, and how many are invested in themselves. Wouldn't you say that that is a true reflection? When you look broad stroke, I'm not speaking specifically about you, but I'm speaking broad stroke. How few, in comparison to how many are into themselves, how few are really into the things of God? You can look at it statistically when you have a special event. What percentage of the church will come out? When you have a prayer meeting, how many will turn out? When you have a cleaning day, how many will turn out? When you have evangelism, how many will turn out? You understand? When you have a, 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 an opportunity to make a difference. How few will engage themselves? The average church is about 10 to 20 percent. That means 80 percent of the church is disconnected and uninvolved. Like this, for all seek their own. Let me read to you from the Passion Translation. Timothy is like no other. He carries the same passion for your welfare that I carry in my heart. For it seems as though everyone is busy seeking what is best for themselves instead of the things that are most important to our Lord Jesus Christ. It would seem in comparison to how few are spiritually focused and engaged how few in comparison, because most are seeking their own thing, doing their own thing, and not the will of God. What an indictment. Now, there was Demas, there was Titus, there were others that were part of Paul's team. They were engaged, they were sacrificial, but in comparison... Only Timothy really carried his heart. That's why I'm very committed to not raising up just church members, but sons, because Timothy was a son. There's a difference between a steward and a son. Stewards will be engaged, 
but sons will give their all. And I truly believe we have to have the restoration of the, uh, like in Malachi, where the heart of the, the, the fathers is turned to the sons. We need to raise up sons in God, not just biological, but our spiritual sons. We need to raise up those who will be the continuum of our life. And that takes an investment. That takes time to shape and mold your children to carry your heart. And somehow Timothy had captured that far greater than all the other part of the apostolic team. He had distinguished himself in his willingness to sacrifice, to go out of his way and to lay his life down for what Paul desired, and that was the state of the church. When I look at the context of this, it's very important, and I read it the other day to the um, leadership team, but let me read it to you, because we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, am I correct? This verses, is it 15 to 17? Is that correct? Now have a look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2 onwards. Fulfill my, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Timothy was like-minded to Paul. And yeah, he's appealing to them in the context to be like-minded. He's not only asking them to be like-minded, he's asking them to have the same love. Because love is the supreme motivation. Being of one accord and of one mind, unity. Unity not just in gathering, kumbaya, holding hands, kiss, kiss, hug, hug. But I'm talking about a unity in purpose, a unity in vision, a unity in culture. Then he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Here's Leon's expanded translation. Everything that you, should, everything that you do or tackle must not be motivated by selfishness. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I have ambition, but I truly believe it is not selfish. My ambition is to reach the lost, to disciple the found, and to build the church. My passion is to bring God's redemption to my generation. That's not a selfish passion. Selfish passion is when you're into your own thing, when you're after the stuff, when, you're, when you just want to be the recipient but not the giver. When you remain the ministry and not the minister, you don't become the minister. Where you stay in immaturity, carnality, and the eternal cycle of babyhood. When you don't grow up and become big in faith and love and vision and purpose. Then you are living like this in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you, so it would appear that this is not just a general appeal, but it is a specific appeal. Let each one of you, in other words, Leon's expanded unpublished, every one of you must be like this, where you are, here it is, not only looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. That seems like a contradiction. You must not be self-seeking. And then he says, you've got to look after your own interests. In other words, you've got to take care of your own life. Don't expect someone else to do for you what you've got to do for yourself. However, 
in the pursuit of taking care of your own spirituality and your own life, make sure that there's a capacity to look after someone else as well. That's what he's saying here. Because, as you've heard me say, you're the custodian of the fireplace of your heart. If you're not hot, burning, don't blame the church Don't blame the pastor. Don't blame those that didn't greet you the way you expected. Don't blame the lack of visiting, the lack of friendship. Just blame yourself. You have to make decisions. You don't have to be dominated by the circumstances. You have personal access to all of God's glory. You can lay hold of anything that you want if you desire it enough. When the whole church has failed you, you can still be deeply spiritual. Look out not only for your own interests. In other words, look after your spirituality. But at the same time, for the interests of others. That's what selflessness does. While looking after yourself, you're looking after someone else. Ask yourself today, who am I looking after? Who am I caring for? Who am I encouraging? Who am I discipling? Who am I reaching out to? Who am I praying for? Because let me tell you something right now. That's the problem in the church. We want someone to pray for us, care for us, visit us, build us. But who are we giving it to? If we would take on a personal obligation to reach our generation, and you just start to reach one soul, disciple one soul, love someone that is unloving, care for someone that is not cared for, feed feed someone that is uh, hungry, make a difference. You may not be able to meet all the needs of humanity, but you can make a difference to one person. And if every Christian did that, we would shake this nation but most are passive, indifferent, and into themselves rather than into the things of God. But also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. In other words, he's saying, this is how Jesus lived. And he's saying it is possible for you and I to live with the mind of Christ, to live with the attitude and the motivation that was found in Jesus. It would be wrong of the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say, let this mind be found in you if you could not have the mind or attitude of Jesus. What a cruel trick it would be to somehow lure us to be spiritual, but it's an impossible goal. So it is possible that you can have the attitude that was found in Jesus. How many of you would like a Christ-like attitude? One person. (laughs) Well, let me speak to myself and one person. It is possible that you can have the attitude of Jesus. I know you're not an amening church, but I want you to get this in your spirit. This is not... This is not superficial. This is the crux of the matter. If we are going to win this generation, we have to have the culture that was found in the primitive church. What was the culture, the, 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 the motivation? It was love that laid down their lives for something bigger than themselves. The early church lived with an attitude of selflessness. And that's how you reach 3,000 
5,000 work miracles, signs following, not in carnality, indifference, passivity, uh, uh, being a church attendee, but you become a carrier of the glory of God, and you have something that you can invest into your generation, that you can release what God has given to you freely, you have received, freely give. The such as I have, I give unto you. You have to get it for you, through you, for someone else, and then you start to influence your world. That's been the light of the world. That's been a carrier of the love of God. That's when the whole earth stands uh, on tiptoes, groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. That's when the church begins to become the church to this generation. And instead of having just our, our services and our routines, we now start to live with the redemption appeal in our lives, making a difference in our generation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So it is possible to have the motivation and the attitude of Jesus. It's the same when Jesus turned around and he said, the works that I do, you shall do also. It would be a cruel trick of Jesus to say to us that we could do the works that he did and not have it being accessible. The Apostle Paul is not writing here just out of his mind, out of his logic, but he's inspired by the Spirit of God. It is God-breathed. And this God-breathed book says, let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you. What attitude? The same that was found in Jesus. It is possible that you and I can have the attitude that was found in Jesus. Let's have a look at this attitude. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew what God had given him. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Have you discovered the reality of the new creation? Have you discovered your rights, privileges, and responsibilities? Because you can't function in this way unless you know who you are, that you're secure in yourself and in your faith. But made himself of no reputation. He wasn't on an ego trip. Selfless people are not on an ego trip. Selfless people are not into building their own reputation. Selfless people are living and dying for something bigger than themselves. Taking the form of a bondservant. The attitude that was in Jesus was the attitude of a servant. The higher you go in the kingdom... The bigger the bowl and towel you carry, the stronger your leadership, the more people you serve. We as leaders are not expecting people to serve us. We want you to serve God. We're not demanding from the people. We are serving the people with the anointing, with the word, with the passion and the compassion of God. That's what Jesus did. He came in the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, he was not operating in his deity. The incarnation 
fully God and fully man. This was not God. This was man. Jesus, a man. He's acting as a man. He didn't lay hold of the authority of being the Son of God, the power. He's operating as a man, Spirit-filled, led by the Spirit, a man who prayed to the Father, had to hear from the, the, the Father like we have to hear. He, he didn't have any special privileges where there was a, a, a tree that gave him gold every morning when he woke up. You understand? He's operating as a man yielded to the Spirit of God. And a servant-hearted man. Therefore, oh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Humility. The greater your authority in the Spirit, the greater the demand to empty yourself of self. Like John the Baptist, let me decrease that he might increase. The greater the measure of authority that you walk in in the Spirit, the greater you need to humble yourself. If you will humble yourself, He will exalt you. We do not exalt ourselves. We do not promote ourselves because we're not on an ego trip. We've made ourselves of no reputation. We walk humbly before God and before man. And, and humble people become obedient. Obedient. To what point? To the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, they were obedient in the face of hostility and false accusation. To what point? To live sacrificially. Paul put it this way, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's what Jesus did. He became a sacrifice. The difference between him and us is he became a sacrifice that bled and died. We become a sacrifice that lives for something bigger than ourselves. That's what selflessness looks like. It looks like Jesus. Acts like Jesus. Servant-hearted humble, obedient, knowing our identity, knowing what we've been given, not using it for an ego trip, but for the exaltation of the glory of God that His name be magnified. The context that Paul was writing in, all this is found in this place where, uh, where he's likening the selflessness found in Timothy in the selflessness that was found in Jesus. And then he goes on further and he starts to speak in the Spirit concerning this selflessness. And read, yeah, he says in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. And that you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I've not run in vain and labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In other words, he's in the same context of Timothy, he likens it to Jesus first, who sacrificed. And then he says, I'm sacrificing. And then he says, 
Timothy is living selflessly and sacrificing. This is the kingdom lifestyle that we're reading about here, where we lay down our lives for something bigger than ourselves. We see in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's what selflessness looks like. It comes not to be served, but to serve. It comes to give. Uh, how? Redemptively, to lay down our lives for someone else, for something bigger than ourselves. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 puts it this way. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That's what the United States of America should have in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where liberty is our motto. This is what we need here. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That's the problem in this nation, that our freedom and our rights are being used for the flesh and not for something for the nation and for something bigger than ourselves. If our politicians would get this right— and those that hold office would get this right. We may be the United States and not the divided states. But they seem to go into power for what they can get. They go in poor and they come out billionaires, cutting deals not for the interest of this nation, but for their self-interest. They sell their souls to special agendas that they don't care about we the people anymore. They care about themselves. We can point fingers at the politicians, but it works the same in the church. We have to have a shift in the church because it's not the White House that's at blame. It's not the, uh, the, the government that is to blame. The truth is the church is not modeling for this nation what spirituality looks like. The, the earth is not controlled by the White House. Even though we may see ourselves as the most important nation in the world, the truth is it's dominated by God's house. We need a shift in God's house. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but here it is. But through love, the motivation, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How he got one word out of that, I have no idea. Paul was great in being healed to the Spirit, but his math was miserable. What is the one word? Love. What is the one word? Jesus. When we love and Jesus is Lord, then this becomes possible. This is reachable, attainable. I would love to read to you the whole parable of the Good Samaritan, but you all know the story so well. How many of you don't know the story of the Good Samaritan? You don't know it? I'm going to tell it to you. You better be telling the truth as well. I'm going to come across there and use this Bible to swat you on the side of the head. 
Those who know me will tell you that I, I am true to my word. You don't know the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to tell you the Good Samaritan story. There was a man doing his own thing, going on his own business. Thieves overpowered him, beat him up, robbed him, left him in the ditch. This dude comes out of the temple. He's a priest. He sees the man in the ditch. He goes to the other side of the road to avoid the responsibility of helping the man in the ditch. Soon his friend, who is a Levite, comes out and notice the priest and the Levite come from the temple. They're on their way to Jericho, and they've just been in the glory of God, worshiping God, bringing their sacrifices, serving God, and they know the law of God. And the law of God says, when you see an animal in a ditch, not a human, an animal, help get that animal out the ditch for your neighbor. He has a man in a ditch. They know the law of God. A man is worth more than an ox or donkey. And instead of going to help the man in the ditch, they go to the other side of the road. Why? Because they're into themselves. They're not into the law of God, the Word of God, the true spiritual life. They know the law in their mind, but they're not doing it. Yet comes this other dude. So we've got four dudes so far. The one in the ditch, the priest, the Levite, and here comes the other dude. And here's a Samaritan. Samaritans were like the distant cousins of the Jewish people. They hated them. Why? Because they hated them. Religion hates anyone, just themselves. So this Samaritan sees the man in the ditch. He's riding on a beautiful uh, um, Mustang convertible. He gets out, it's white seats, flashy red, just a beautiful car. He gets out, he sees the dude in the ditch. He goes and gets some first aid kit and he helps him. He uses his first aid kit, he bandages him up, helps him, picks him up, lifts him, puts him in the, in the um, Mustang, straps him in because he knows the law that you've got to use a seatbelt. He also knows what that little thing on the steering wheel that goes up and down. It's called an indicator. He knows what that is for. He puts his indicator on. He makes a U-turn, and he goes to the Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> he knows the innkeeper at the Holiday Inn Express. He knows he's a compassionate, caring man. He says, hey, dude, number five. Would you please look after my friend? I, I want to buy, uh, uh, I want to rent a room for him for a couple of days. Give him a king-size bed. I want you to tend to him, make sure he gets some um, uh, meds and some care and some fresh dressings. I'll pay whatever it costs. Feed him, look after him. And here is some money in advance. Gives him his American Express because he's an American Samaritan. We invite all nations to this nation to come and become part of the American dream. The innkeeper says, listen, I want to take your American. I insist you take my American Express. Ring it up. And in fact, I'm going to come back, and if I owe you more, I'm going to pay it. The parable of the Good Samaritan is this. Religion doesn't care for people compassion does. Let me say it to this way. You can be religious 
but be selfish. Selfish people don't want to help someone else. Selfless people go out of their way. They don't mind blood on their white leather seats and their beautiful red Mustang. They don't mind using up their resource for something that's never going to benefit them. They don't mind going out their way to help them make a difference in society. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you know it now? Write me a 15-page essay on the benefits of being a Samaritan in a Jewish world. (laughs) But it's a story of selflessness, going out your way. And Jesus used that illustration to show how that you can be in the law, but lack compassion, lack the willingness to lay down your life for something bigger than yourself, that you can be in the glory of God, and yet the glory of God never transforms your life. And guess what? Many of these Levites and priests are in the modern-day church. They attend faithfully. They fulfill their vows. They go to, to church, but they're not changed in their heart to do the will and the Word of God. Tonight we sang a song, I loved it, I mean, I give myself away. (laughs) I I have a quote, easier sung than done. Easier sung than done. It's easy to sing, I give myself away. My life is not my own, to you I belong. We can even sing it, and please forgive me by sounding crude and condescending here, but you can sing it with tears streaming down your face. My life is not my own. To you I belong. I give myself, I give myself to you. And then he asks you to do something, and then you have the audacity to turn around and say, I'm too busy. I don't have the time. I don't have the resource. Well, God's not going to ask you to do something that is convenient. Uh, As uh, um, Pastor Rob said, anything that God gives you will be bigger than yourself. It will demand of you sacrifice. It will demand of you to go out of your way. I have never taken a nation when it's been convenient. I've never gone into a village. Uh, uh, Like I said, I went to Barbados in the peak of hurricane season. I go to Saskatchewan in the the mid of winter. I live in Florida. I'm never in Florida. I'm always somewhere in the world at the wrong season in that place. This week, when I finish here, I fly to Connecticut. Connecticut will be in peak fall, I trust. Beautiful orange, yellow leaves. It's the one little reprieve I have because everyone loves fall. Oh, I love fall. Temperature's just so perfect. I'll move to Florida in the winter, become a snowbird. You can have permanent fall the whole of winter. It's just a glorious place. Or California, just a magnificent weather, but you can't always relocate. Well, you don't want to pay the taxes in California, and you don't want a Dumbo as a governor either. (laughs) Sorry. They have some outrageous laws that they're signing in that state, my goodness. I give myself away to you I belong. That's what we need in the church, not the song, but the actions. 
That's what selflessness, that's what selflessness is. Now, if we live selflessly, what's going to happen is we'll reach the lost. We'll pray. We'll be engaged. We'll serve. We'll be busy about the business of eternity. The priorities of heaven will become our priorities. Now, if we are selfish, then we'll be so busy with our own thing that there'll be no capacity for the thing of what God's telling you to do. And that's the problem in the church today. We need to have the shift to, I seek not my own. We need to seek something bigger than ourselves, the will of God. Let's stand. Let's pray. How many of you want to have a shift in your priorities? When you analyze your lives, how many of you would say, well, there's a whole lot of me around, and there's got to be a whole lot more of Jesus. John the Baptist said, let me decrease that he might increase. That's not a weight loss program. <laughs> let me decrease meant, let me change my priorities. Let me get out the way so that he can be the way. Let my voice be silenced so that his voice be amplified. You understand? The, and he understood he had to make room for Jesus. Many Christians are living with their lives so cluttered that they have to decrease that he may increase. You know, I, I was reading a, a, a phrase, more Lord. I truly believe the Lord wants to give us more. We used to sing, uh, I think it was a John Wimber song, more love, more power, more of you in my life. The truth is, for us to have more, there has to be a capacity for more. And when He gives you what you've got, you've got to do something with it to get the increase. If you keep it for yourself, you lose it. If you give it away, what you do is you keep making capacity for more. People say to me, Leon, you travel 40 weeks of the year. You hardly sleep. You work so hard. How do you do it? I tell you how I do it. I just keep giving away what God gives me. The more I give, it's like the more time He gives me. The more I give, the more energy He gives me. The more I give, the more resources He entrusts to me. It's just the principle. I keep giving what He gives me. Freely I receive, freely I give. And I'm energized, I'm strengthened, I'm, 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 I'm blessed in my life. Because all I've done is I've become a conduit of the entrustment of God. Instead of keeping it for myself, I release it. Many Christians today are keeping what God's giving, not to you, but through you for someone else. Make room for Him. Release what God has given you into your generation through prayer, through intercession, through service, through submission, through engagement. And instead of being the one ministered to, become the minister. Instead of becoming the recipient, become the giver. Instead of wanting to be served, be like Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And start to lay down your life. Everyone knows John 3.16, but few know First John 3.16, which is 
even as he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He laid down his life. He's saying, just in the same way love laid down his life, Christ, having loved the church, gave himself. Now won't you give yourself to something bigger than yourself? I shared it on, I, I think it was on Sunday morning. I went to this church in South Africa, and they said, won't you fill it, write something in our journal? something that comes from your years, 45 years of ministry, won't you write something that would, would just be a, a message to this congregation? I said, you need to live and, yea, even die for something bigger than yourself. That's a problem. People are living for themselves and not for the cause of Christ. And our world remains untouched. If you want to make a difference in your world, if you want to make a difference in your church, it's going to mean you've got to become selfless. How many of you tonight want to lay down your life? It is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith, faith in Him. <laughs> uh, there, were, there was this uh, scripture, it just comes to mind in Second Corinthians. That one died for all, therefore all have died. That we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and rose again. Could you imagine if every Christian lived for Him? We all want the benefits of His death, but are we willing to lay down our lives for something bigger than ourselves? How many of you tonight have been challenged in your spirit, in your soul, in your mind, in your being? Anyone? What about my dude there who who didn't know the story, you were challenged. Are you willing to take your red Mustang and white leather seats and go help someone and do something to make a difference in this generation? Then you're released from that 15-page essay. Just go do it. Truly, how many of you were challenged tonight? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. The disciples... They were mending their nets. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. What did they do? They abandoned their nets and they followed him. There is a stripping off. Elijah comes to Elijah, puts the mantle on him. He has to get rid of his oxen, his plow. Why? Because he's going to invest himself into something bigger than himself. The disciples did it. There came a point when Peter turns around to Jesus. He says, Lord, we've given away everything. Jesus turns around to him and says, dude, you're not going to lose. You're going to get a hundredfold in this life with persecution, unfortunately, and in the age to come. You don't lose. You don't lose. Lord God, thank you for these who have been stirred in their heart tonight. And I pray, God, that there'll come a cultural shift in their mind and in their attitude to be forged and shaped to be like Jesus to have the mind of Jesus who became a bondservant, humbled himself, obedient, sacrificial. God, just like Paul, became a, a drink offering poured out in service for those that he was working to reach and grow and build. God, thank you that tonight... You are transforming our lives. You are renewing our minds. You are shaping us and molding us to be like Jesus, selfless instead of selfish. 
God, where there are things that have attached themselves to our lives that limit us, busyness, distractions. God, I pray that these idols would be destroyed, that the grip of our lives would be broken, that their vice grip would be broken in the name of Jesus. Tonight I set people free from distractions that rob you from true spirituality. I set you free to set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated, to seek Him as your highest and your first priority. I break the power and the chains of those distractions, those idols, those things that have no power, and yet hold you back, and I release you from them tonight in the name of Jesus, to live and even be willing to die. Like Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I pray, God, that the people in this place would take up their cross and follow you, that they would deny themselves, that they would be shaped with kingdom culture versus secular westernized culture, that God as citizens of heaven, they would think like heaven, they would speak like heaven, and they would act the way heaven has manifested itself in Christ on earth, sacrificially, humbly, obedient. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name, work a work in each one, that souls would be saved, empty lives would be filled, healed, set free, raised, taught, trained, disciples, that God, mountains would move as the church intercedes, that this nation would be saved from the grip of the onslaught of secular world values that are forced down our throats every day by media, that God would hear from your word, that your word would shape our values, that your word would shape our thinking and our speaking and our acting. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated for a moment. I'm going to call people forward for prayer in one moment. Pastor Bob, would you please come and join me? Pastor Rob, come and join me. Tonight, we just want to pray for Elder Robert and April Montgomery. If you'd come forward, we just want to um, lay hands upon your lives um, as you um, have been formally raised into eldership in this church, but you've never had the opportunity for me to lay hands on you. Uh, I, I love your attitude sitting there with your big books taking notes. That impresses me. Your submerged T-shirt impresses, impresses me. I was in a yellow submarine once with the Beatles. It was rather a psychedelic experience, but I was in a yellow submarine once as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we want to pray for you guys. I know that you are hungry for God and you're zealous for souls and and that you have already made this commitment to live selflessly 
for something bigger than yourselves, and so much so that the evidence of your spirituality has gained the attention of the pastors, and they've raised you and ordained you into this position, but they've asked me while I'm here as an apostolic voice to this church just to lay hands on you and pray for you. Is that okay? Even if it's not, it's too late. I'm coming down. <laughs> How many of you noticed them taking notes there? Isn't that cool? Now, let me give you a, a little bit of modern-day advice here. You can take notes, or you can just hit record. <laughs> Technology is on your side. You can just record, welcome to 2018. <laughs> but I am a note-taker. I like taking notes. I just type them in now. I I'm paperless. This is it. But it impressed me. I like that hunger for God. Yeah, you are elders. Taking notes. Uh, writing out the scriptures. That, that hunger is so critical. That is what the church needs. When I was first born again, Bible, notes, going to church, carrying my recorder, it was like a boombox tape-to-tape thing, recording the messages, going home, listening to them. That's how you grow. And church, I want you to note this. These are elders, mature, but they still got that, that early passion has not diminished in their lives. It's a critical lesson for you all. Hallelujah. But you don't have to take notes. Just record and then listen to it. Pastor Bob does that. He puts the teaching tapes he was saying we're teaching tapes. <laughs> I give my age away. You dudes don't even know what a tape is, do you? It was around like eons ago. Podcasts. You know what a podcast is? A tape was an old-fashioned podcast. When I was born again, we didn't even have cassettes. We had reel-to-reel. You'd have to feed it through. And then we went to these cassettes that were about this big. When you put them in your car, your car sank down. The, they were so heavy. You had to use two hands to put it in. A track. And then when they got wound up, you'd pull them out, and you'd sit with a pencil, and you'd screw them in. How come you know that? How old are you? Huh? Oh, you, <laughs> you know, it's about it, the bad old days. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for these leaders in your house. Tonight, oh God, we affirm their spirituality, their leadership, their desire for your word and for the lost and for the health of the church. We lay hands upon them in the name of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, setting them aside for this holy work your power, O oh God, be released in them now in the name of Jesus. Protect them in the midst of violent assaults. Sustain them by the power of your right hand. And use them to be an amplified voice to this generation. Be magnified in them. Be magnified through them as they become your voice extended, as they become your hand extended as they become your life revealed to this generation, living epistles read by men.
So, God, we set them aside for this holy function. God, keep growing them, expand them, increase them. Give them favor in the fields that are white unto harvest. Give them souls. Give them disciples. Let the church feel the impact of their ministry as people are brought into the kingdom from darkness and discipled in the light of your love. God, use them, I pray, in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a shout of praise. It's been good to be with you these three days. Saturday, four for the leaders. Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Three days. Saturday. Oh, it's four meetings. Sunday morning, Sunday night. I knew I had four in there somewhere. And um, tonight, and uh, it's been good to be with you. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll-free at 866-383-8277.